Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. 157 years ago this month, in April 1865, one of the most heartbreaking and infuriating incidents of the Civil War took place. After surviving four long years of war and the horror of months imprisoned at Andersonville or other camps, U.S. prisoners of war were back under the stars and stripes at last. From Vicksburg, Mississippi, some 1,900 of them were crammed on board a boat designed for only a few hundred passengers, headed home at last. But most would never make it. We'll find out what happened to them, and why, from Jean Eric Salaker, author of Destruction of the Steamboat Sultana, the Worst Maritime Disaster in American History. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, where we usually come from. Not, however, representing the university, not speaking for them or for anybody else, just myself. My guest speaks only for himself, as always. Here at ECU, it's been a pleasant week. It's the last week of classes for the spring semester, April 2022. Uh, It's been a good week for ECU teams all around. Uh, ECU alum Harold Varner III uh, had an outstanding round at the Masters Golf Tournament a couple weeks ago. I don't normally watch golf on TV, but when when HV3 is playing, he wears his purple shirt to represent uh, the Pirates on Sundays. And then last week's tournament, in wherever it was, I have no idea, uh, he also did very well, tied for third. Pirate Baseball won five in a row. Uh, They won again yesterday. They're nine out of 11. They're doing well. But the big winner in town was Sup Dogs. Sup Dogs is a bar uh, and restaurant that 
won the best college bar title for the third time in the past four years. I have no idea exactly how legitimate this is. Uh, I think it's some some online organization runs a, a, a contest where they, whoever gets the most tweets in their favor uh, is the winner. And if you if you hashtag suck dogs, you get added to the score. And they, they run it like a tournament, like a, a DNCAA tournament, and they go round by round. And uh, after winning twice in a row, they lost last year. But they came back for the revenge tour this year and won. I wouldn't normally spend any time telling you about a college bar, but this is an interesting place. The owner, the original owner, uh, had a lifelong dream of having a, a restaurant and bar and was making a decent success of it when he uh, had a tragic house fire and he went back in to rescue his dog and lost his life. And everyone thought the bar would have to close. His brother, who knew nothing about running restaurants, was not his, his field, took it over and tried to keep it open and it worked. People rallied around him and it, it stayed open and thrived and uh, it really is, is the heart of student uh, life down on, on 5th Street during uh, uh, during you know football season and, and I guess throughout the year. I have actually eaten there uh, with my daughters. I, I would have to go there with college-age people or I would be creepy, uh, but I have been in there with, with my kids uh, when they've been in town, and, and the food's pretty good. So if you're in town, uh, stop by here. We'll go to Sup Dogs. If we do it in the afternoon, we can get a beer and not be, be weird, but it can't go at night. That's student time. Uh, where you can go is to www.impedimentsofwar.org and find out who's going to be on the show next. Uh, next week, we'll have our uh, good friend Tim Talbot come back and talk to us about the Battle of Newmarket Heights. He was with the New Market Heights Memorial uh, and Education Association project he's working on. We'll learn about that. On the 4th of May, Vince Burns will be here to describe an interesting new book, Voices of the Army of the Potomac. And then we'll have a couple weeks of no live shows, just reruns. To hear my voice live, you'll have to go on the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours uh, Civil War Battlefield Tour called This Hallowed Ground. I believe there actually may be uh, a spot or two open even at this late date. Uh, the tour goes, uh, there's two of them in June uh, from the 14th, I'm sorry, in May from the 14th to the 22nd. Another version runs in June from the 18th to the 26th. I've been doing this for many years before it was even a Stephen Ambrose Company tour. It used to be Matterhorn Travel and uh, leading these tours. And they're just, they're they're really fun. They're really interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, meeting with some of you in person. I've made longtime friends with a number of you who I got to meet, and we stay in touch by email. Uh, so hopefully, if, if you've got the time free, come and join it. It will be interesting. If you're looking for even more, that's not enough touring, you say, I want more, then it's also the season for the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. This year it runs from June 10 through the 15th, and they keep changing the the uh, array of events to make it more interesting every year. This year, on June 13th, they're going to have a series of all-day tours. You pick one of them and spend the day traveling uh, places like South Mountain with uh, D. Scott Hartwig, uh, touring the uh, early Raid in Washington with Dennis Fry, uh, 
Jen Murray will be talking about charges of the Civil War. You'll be going to Fredericksburg with her and the Mule Shoe at Spotsylvania. Keith Bohannon and Eric Mink are taking a group to Second Fredericksburg. And uh, Robert E.L. Crick, uh, many of you know uh, of him, is taking a group to the North Anna, a battlefield that doesn't get nearly as much publicity. So all kinds of stuff, all within the Civil War Institute. Go to the gettysburgcollege.edu website and find out about it. Uh, I'll be there just hanging out and meeting you and and, uh, lining up guests for next season's shows. So lots going on there. The introduction uh, I pointed out describes one what I really think was both heartbreaking and infuriating uh, to read about, but utterly fascinating. The story is that of the steamboat Sultana that uh, exploded and sank in April 1867 with hundreds, uh, many hundreds of uh, federal ex-prisoners of war aboard. And it's the subject of the book destruction of the steamboat sultana the worst maritime disaster in american history by gene eric saliker who is our guest tonight uh gene are you there hello jerry uh, well welcome to the show i have two questions to start with uh that you wrote about this story in a book published in 1996 and my second question is going to be what uh why why come back to it what's new since then but my first question is, given how, uh, just, just again, how heartbreaking the story is, what brought you to it in the first place? Um, I ran across the Sultana uh, strictly by accident. I, I was always a uh, uh, Civil War uh, enthusiast, and uh, I was going for a history degree, read all kinds of Civil War books, um, and then I just happened to pick up a book at a local library where I used to live outside of Chicago area uh, called Transport to Disaster by a man named uh, uh, James W. Elliott, whose uh, grandfather had been on board the Sultana. So that's how he knew about it. And I read this book, and I was just fascinated. I'd read all these Civil War books and never heard anything about the Sultana. And I wanted more, but unfortunately, uh, Mr. Elliott's books did not have footnotes and it had a uh, terrible bibliography, so I just started doing research on my own. I was I was I was hooked. You know, I was just fascinated by this story of you know, um, twelve hundred people dying and nobody even knowing about it. Now this <clears throat> uh, this book, I want to hasten to say, does have footnotes. It, it's very carefully sourced. Uh, but writing history is not your day job, is it? No. Well, it is now because I'm retired. Um, uh, I, I do writing, I do research writing, and I'm also the historical consultant for the Sultana Disaster Museum in Marion, Arkansas, which is basically across the Mississippi River from Memphis, and it is the closest town to where the remains of the Sultana now lie underneath a, um, an Arkansas soybean field, and that's only because the Mississippi River has shifted about two miles to the east of where it, it used to run. So that's a question I'll often ask people if we're talking about battlefields. You know, what's the state of battlefield preservation? What can we see today? And uh, when I got to the end of your book and you were describing where the Sultana is, I expected, well, you know, it's in the river. It's not accessible unless you're a diver. But you said it's under a soybean field. So, so, so the the, the earth moved and and covered its the wreck site. Is that what happened? 
Um, well, what happened is it sank in the, in the river at the head of this one island, and it was actually by uh, the head of a chute that went, went around behind this island. And over the years, every time that the Mississippi floods, every spring flood, um, it, would, it would cover the sultan a little bit more with silt, a little bit more with silt. Um, and eventually, it blocked off this, this chute, and, uh, and it was no longer the little town... Um, uh, Mound City was no longer accessible, so th- that city is no longer even even in Arkansas. But um, what happened was then again the Mississippi kept covering over the remains of the Sultana, and eventually uh, it covered it so deep that it's about 20 feet underground now because it had sunk into the river. So it was it was <laughs> you know under under uh, the water to begin with. Um, and then eventually, when the salt, when the Mississippi River, you know, changed courses, which it does all the time, except for now, not so much because with the uh, Army Corps of Engineers maintaining the levees and such. Um, but when it shifted uh, course, the Sultana was left high and dry, you know, underneath a soybean field. Wow, it's fascinating. I I had the same reaction the first time I went to to Vicksburg and discovered it's not on the Mississippi anymore. <laughs> uh, right, the same right. reaction that wow, the, the that's a living thing that river so let's talk about the sultana itself uh, first thing i learned at the start is it's not the only sultana you, you refer to it as sultana number five in the early chapters uh what are the tell us a bit about the history of this boat yeah um um people always ask you know what does sultana mean sultana is uh basically a female sultan or the concubine of a sultan um, so that's how it got its name. And um, as, as you mentioned, Jerry, the, the, uh, the Sultana that we know of now, and actually the last boat to carry that name, was the fifth boat. There had been four other uh, steamboats named Sultana. Uh, one of them ran for about seven years, which is really unusual for a steamboat to last that long. Most of the time, uh, they're either hitting a snag and sinking, poking a hole in their, in their uh, hull, uh, running into a, a, a a rock or something, or they just catch fire because they're they're built of such thin material and it's oil based paint, so they go up like a you know like a matchstick. And um, uh, number number two also uh, ran two or three years, and then when they brought in a third sultan, another uh, uh, owner brought in a third sultan, he decided to retire the second one. And number three and number four actually end up uh, burning. One of them is is sitting at St. Louis when the um, uh, there's a fire among a number of other boats, and it just happened to be in the wrong spot at the wrong time and burnt. And then the fourth one, the last one before uh, my Sultana, or as I call it, our Sultana, um, it was actually uh, down going down river on the Mississippi and just below, I think it was New Madrid, uh, Missouri there, when it uh, caught fire. And they were able to, as they normally did with a steamboat, if it was a, a fire on board, you jam the boat into the shore, have everybody rush off, and at least they, you know, they're safe. They stand there and watch the boat burn, which is what happened. But at least everybody's safe. And um, so then, and I and I believe that happened, you know, in the in the mid 1850s. So there would not have been a sultana for about seven or eight years until um, the fifth sultana is built in uh, Cincinnati uh, uh, in uh, January slash February of 1863. So the these boats that are they're quite short lived as as you suggest they're they're not not built to last they're they're wooden uh they're very shallow draft uh, i gather they they 
there's not much. They have these huge towering, uh, you know, you know, buildings practically on top of them. When you listeners, you're picturing, you know, the Robert E. Lee or any other famous steamboat. The Sultana kind of looks like that. Uh, big side paddle wheels, big smokestacks, but but doesn't go very far underwater. No, no. Uh, it's about four foot uh, draft is all, and and you know they they want that because. Again, you know, there's so many sandbars and there's so many uh, snags and such like that uh, in the bottom of the uh, the Mississippi River. And of course, you know, when the river goes down in in late summer, um, you still want to be able to to uh, you know navigate as as much as you can with as little the draft as you can. Um, so yeah, they were they were specifically built uh, low draft and uh, and pretty as I said, pretty light material. In the superstructure, the cabins and uh, and the uh, the pilot house and the Texas cabin, which is where the officers stay, was usually a, a real flimsy material because you did not want to have a lot of weight. You want to left, leave your weight for your your cargo or your passengers. So the uh, I guess the heaviest thing on board would be the the engine uh, uh, and the boilers in particular. These are run by steam power. The, one of the things I, I like about any book like this, I, I'm a sucker for learning about how things work that I don't normally deal with, and uh, reading about how how maritime boilers operate. Uh, we're going to take a break in just a minute, so we might we'll, we'll come back to this topic. But just uh, the basic. Well, I'll lay it out, and we'll we'll take a break, and, and you come back and, and and give us the details. Uh, sure. Yeah. You've got boilers full of water. You've got fire underneath them, burning coal or wood or whatever the fuel is. It heats the boilers. The water inside gets to boiling. That produces steam. The steam drives the engine. Seems pretty simple. Uh, right. But these boilers have a little more to them, and they have more that can go wrong. So let, let's hold on that thought. Uh, we'll come back in a minute and find out just what can go wrong with the boilers of the Steamboat Sultana. It's the subject of the book, Destruction of the Steamboat Sultana, the Worst Maritime Disaster in American History. The author is Gene Eric Salaker. He's our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. 
Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Jean Eric Salaker, author of Destruction of the Steamboat Sultana, the Worst Maritime Disaster in American History. So we've been talking about the Sultana itself, a Mississippi River steamboat that, uh, it, it steamboat is powered by steam, that means you've got to boil water. And uh, I, I was fascinated to learn about how these boilers operate. They're not just big uh, uh you know, tin cans full of water. They, they've got all this technology around them. Uh, the Sultana had tubular boilers. What, what is a tubular boiler? Okay. Um, well, the Sultana had four tubular boilers, and they sat uh, side by side next to each other horizontally. Um, and tubular boilers were fairly new uh, construction or whatever uh, design, I guess, uh, um, in 1863. Normally, a boiler has what are called flues, and flues are basically big tubes running through it, wide wide tubes, maybe about uh, 12 inches uh, wide, and there's usually about three of these running from the front end of the boiler to the back end. And what happens is you have a furnace sitting underneath the front end of the boiler with a, a furnace door that would be open, and of course, you know, the stokers would throw the coal into a grating and such. And what happens is, um, just by draft, the same thing that, you know, causes the hot air to rise in your chimney and instead of go into your, into your room and stuff like that, smoke and everything go into your room, um, uh, a draft will pull the hot air from the furnace underneath the boiler, and this is all contained within a, a shell, and then it, it go, actually goes through those flues and then up the, the chimneys, or the, the smokestacks, steamboat guys call them chimneys, so I sometimes use, use that term also. Um, what, what happened on the Sultana, rather than have three of these large flues, they had 24 small uh, tubes. Uh, that's why it was called the tubular boiler, because they felt by that, that increasing the number of tubes and the amount of, of uh, um, red-hot uh, uh, iron with this hot air going through them, and it's surrounded, of course, with water inside the boiler, it would create, you know, steam more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Only problem was it was easy to get inside and clean a, uh, a flue boiler. Um, they actually have little trap doors, and a, a small man or a, a boy would sometimes have to climb inside. You know, they drain the water out, and you climbed inside the boiler, and you would scrape all of the uh, impediments and stuff that you picked up from the Mississippi, muddy Mississippi River, um, and the the, uh, the scale and stuff would be, you know, s- scraped off of the flues. Well, it was hard to do that with a tubular boiler because the tubes were so small, but having 24 of them inside the boiler, they're so close together, it would be hard to get a scraping tool or a chain or something that they would, they would loop a chain underneath the flues and then rock it back and forth and sort of scrape the sediment off. Well, it's, it's hard to do that with a tubular boiler. Um, after the Sultana blows up, 
and two other uh, um, steamboats blow up shortly thereafter. Um, they pulled tubular boilers from the river. They're, they're, they're not safe, especially on the lower Mississippi where they use the muddy uh, water. But eventually, uh, steamboat owners will take, in, take out advertisements saying, we no longer have tubular boilers. We've replaced them with the, the standard flue boilers because they were so, so dangerous. So uh, the idea that these these tubes run right through the inside the boiler, which is filled with water, so the tubes are surrounded by the boiler water, and and, and the tubes get Correct. super hot because they're full of the hot gas coming from the furnace, and right. that's what right. that heats the water faster. I mean, it makes sense. It seems logical, but uh, uh, like a heating element put inside a coffee pot, but obviously uh, there are risks here. Let's turn to the, the people on board the, the Sultana and come, we'll come back to the uh, the boiler and, and what went wrong. Uh, it's April 1865. The, the war's over. You've got all these prisoners in in Confederate hands and they, they're they moving north and you tell uh, the story. There's a lot to it, the legalities of how they're going to be exchanged or how they're going to get back north. But the bottom line is you end up with a camp of prisoners at Vicksburg, Mississippi, that have been transferred from the Confederacy to federal hands. Now Union officers have custody of them, and it's their job to get them sent north. Yeah, well, what happened happened is that in uh, in April, uh, actually in March of 1865, uh, Confederate prisoners being held at Andersonville Prison. Of course, you know we know how terrible that is, and mm-hmm. at a place called Cahaba Prison, which is near Selma, Alabama, were sent uh, westward to Vicksburg, where they are placed inside of a uh, was supposed to be an exchange camp, uh, just out, about four miles outside of Vicksburg, and and they're still considered Confederate prisoners, but they were now being clothed and fed and taken care of by Union authorities. And what will happen is um, they're waiting for Confederate prisoners from the North to come down, and there would be a man-for-man exchange. But it never occurs. The North never sends these guys down. So after sitting there for about a month, and with the Confederacy falling apart, General Lee surrendering, and you know it, just, it looks bad for the Confederacy, um, they, the Confederate authorities at this camp get word to just release the guys. Don't wait for a man-to-man exchange. Just release them. So what they're going to do is they're going to put groups of about a thousand men, is what they were supposed to do, on board steamboats, taking them north. Um, the first two boats will take them up to St. Louis, and the Sultana was supposed to take them up to, to Cairo, uh, Illinois, where they would then get on train cars to go to uh, Camp Chase, uh, just outside of Columbus, Ohio. It's interesting that they're they're going there because they're still technically prisoners, and they're they're actually going to be paroled. They they they're going to a Union parole camp before they can officially be discharged. Just like all of Lee's guys gave their paroles at Appomattox, and they got to go Correct. home, but they're still technically under Union control. These guys are Correct. still technically under Confederate control, but. They want to go home. Everybody wants them home. The war is over. Let's just go home. So, a thousand men per steamboat. That's a lot. That's more. I mean, can you normally get a thousand guys on a steamboat? Would they carry that many yeah. passengers? You could, but it would be very crowded. Uh, the Sultana was registered to carry uh, seventy-six cabin passengers and three hundred deck passengers. They would be on the on the main deck. They, you pay a lot less than you would for cabin mm-hmm. passage, um, and plus a crew of about eighty-five. So you'd have 
oh, roughly about 450 people on board the Sultana. That's what it was legally registered to carry. Um, the Sultana is going to be uh, crowded with, with 1,966 um, uh, Union ex-prisoners of war. And again, these guys are fresh out of Andersonville uh, Prison and Cahaba Prison. They're, you know, they've, they've sat around for a month at this parole camp, so they've gotten a little bit of their weight back, but not enough to, to try mm-hmm. to save yourself in, in the Mississippi. So you've got almost 2,000 parole prisoners placed on board the Sultana, 70 paying passengers, 22 guards, and 85 crew people. So you have you know over 2,100 people crowded on a boat that's legally supposed to carry less than about 450 people. Um, so it was really overcrowded. Um, not so much overloaded because as the pilot the, the pilot will survive and he will say it was not overloaded because we we have carried tons and tons of freight um, mm-hmm. and you know 2000 people is not going to weigh what uh, what some of the freight would have weighed so the obvious question is why so many crowded on this boat were there no other boats <laughs> headed up the river at that point uh, no, there there were um, actually uh, the steamboat captains were getting paid uh, to transport these people. The United States government was paying the captains uh, to transport these people upriver to either St. Louis or to Cairo, Illinois. And what's going to happen is that um, uh, there's there's a lot of bribery that goes on, and the Sultana has a unique place in history. Not only because of its being the worst maritime disaster in American history. But it was also the first steamboat to head down river uh, with news of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. It had been sitting at Cairo, Illinois, when word comes through the telegraph on, on April 15th that Lincoln has died at 722 in the morning. And uh, Sultana grabs, you know, Captain James Cass Mason, uh, head of the, the captain of the Sultana, grabs a bunch of Cairo newspapers and decides, I'm going to go down river and become the messenger of death. And mm-hmm. as he's going down river, uh, passing all this information about the, the, the death of Lincoln, um, they get to Vicksburg, and there's a, an Illinois uh, captain there, and I'm from Illinois, so I hate to mention this guy's name, but mm. Captain Reuben Benton Hatch, um, who comes on board, and he was a friend of Abraham Lincoln. He, uh, I'm, I'm sure he was shocked by Lincoln's assassination, but at the mm-hmm. same time, he was there to make a deal with James Cass Mason. Uh, Mason had been running into some problems with his boat. He was he needed money. Uh, Reuben Hatch had at one point quit the service and uh, uh, went back to his merchandising store in, in Illinois, but the store burned down and he didn't have it insured, so he needed money. Mm-hmm. And he approaches, he goes back into the military, he gets placed in charge of uh, Quartermaster Corps at Vicksburg. He takes and he approaches Mason and he says, hey, we've got these paroled prisoners sitting out here. When you go all the way down to, to New Orleans, spreading the word of Lincoln's assassination, when you come back upriver, I'll guarantee that you get a 1,000 men if you guarantee to give me a kickback on, on some of the money, you're, the government money you're going to get. And Mason readily agrees. And that's why when the Sultana comes back upriver and ends up getting almost 2,000 people on board, Captain Mason, he's not arguing because the more men he gets on board, the more money he makes. And of course, Reuben Benton Hatch, he's not arguing because the more money, the the more men that Mason gets, and the more money Mason makes, the more of a kickback uh, Reuben Benton Hatch is going to make. 
Um, so it's greed, it's corruption, it's all that that, that leads to this overcrowding of the Steamboat Sultana. So even though there are other boats literally sitting there in port next to it, uh, right. the, the people working for Hatch just keep packing new guys onto the boat, and, and they're going to go. They're, the, the mood on the boat as they leave, the, the, again, it adds to the tragedy, the holiday mood. These guys are finally going home. Uh, the Mississippi is not an easy trip, though. I mean, they're, they're, they're going upriver. Uh, so right. they're fighting a current, right. uh, and and this is April. So so I guess the current's running pretty fast from the well. The it, it it was it was April. So you're having the the runoff of the the northern you know snows and melts and everything like that, or all those rivers that that eventually flow into the the Mississippi um, have increased the Mississippi. You have to also remember the Army Corps of Engineer, which which is in charge of taking care of the levees and such has been being used during the war to, you know, uh, build fortifications mm-hmm. around Petersburg and, and Corduroy Roads with uh, Sherman's March to the Sea and everything. Um, so they're not around to, to maintain the levees. And at, at places, the Mississippi will be will flood three miles wide. Uh, when the Sultana will explode, these guys will float down river and they grab onto the, what they think are bushes. And when they put their feet down, they find out that there's no land underneath them. They're not in bushes. This is 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, so they can't really mm-hmm. see yet. But they're sitting in the tops of treetops. That it's, the flood is that high that mm-hmm. the only thing above the water is the tops of their trees. And um, so, yes, the Sultana is fighting upriver against this. Um, it had it had bad boilers. That's one of the things that you know James Cass Mason. He he liked to race his boat, and he was mm-hmm. tough on his boilers. And a couple times, you know, they had to have repairs on it. Uh, in fact, while the guys are being loaded on board at Vicksburg, the boilers being repaired. Now, the patch that they put on, people make a big thing out of it, but the patch is actually in the front. For underneath the boiler, and the explosion will come from the top back of the boilers. So that that the patch really had nothing to do with it, but it does show that um, Mason was tough on his boilers, uh, and they they you know really needed repair. And here he's fighting up river against this flood, and the surviving pilot and one of the surviving engineers will will, will testify that we went up river at nine or ten miles an hour, which was the standard rate. And Jerry, you have to think, if they're going up river at that standard rate against a strong current hitting them in the nose, mm-hmm. they had to be pushing that boat stronger and faster than the, you know putting more pressure on those boilers than need be. It's just like you know if you're driving uphill with your car and you mm-hmm. don't have it on cruise control, <laughs> if you're using your foot pedal, you have to push down a little bit stronger on that gas pedal to make yourself go uphill at the same rate and that's exactly what was happening on board the sultana so they they go up river and uh again this just these little details just keep adding up uh they make it as far as memphis and they Correct. they stop there and a lot of the guys actually get off because they're they're crowded in like like uh, right. you know animals inside literally they can't move they're happy to get off and and maybe get some food or take a nap or something Correct. but then they get back uh they leave in the middle of the night uh right is that right, right? well they they arrived at seven o'clock at and at night and uh-huh. uh, they knew they were going to be there for a quite a while a few hours because they they had uh these 
giant hogsheads, which are giant barrels full of sugar, weigh about 1,200 pounds. They have to be rolled off the boat, taken out of the hold, rolled off the boat, and shoved up the the, uh, the levee there. Um, and and so the the uh, steamboat will, uh, captain Captain Mason will actually. Uh, pay some of the the prisoners to help them to try to expedite the the removal of these these big hogsheads. In the meantime, there's you know about three or four hundred guys that will get off the Sultana, go into town. A couple of them you know go to a theater. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of them went to bars. Some of a lot of them went to what was called the soldiers' home in Memphis, which was like a a, a, a Civil War USO. You go there, mm-hmm. you get up. A warm cot, you could get a, a warm meal. Uh, in this instance, the guys usually are going there just for a warm meal. They want to get back on the Sultana. But around midnight, uh, the, the hogsheads are removed, and that was a problem because you had, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's 134 uh, tons of hoghead is going to be removed from the hold of the, of the Sultana, and that's what was keeping the boat stable. You have all these guys on the upper decks, and there's a wonderful picture of the Sultana that was taken at Helena, Arkansas, uh, about 12 hours before the disaster. And you can see how crowded it is with these guys on these upper decks. And whenever the Sultana went past the town or a steamboat came downriver, these guys would crowd to one side or the other, and the boat would actually rock back and forth, which is not good for the boilers because the water inside the boilers will tend to slosh to one side and leaving the the upper part of the boilers and those those upper flues without water surrounding them and they'll get red hot and if the if the boat comes back to an even keel that's going to you know hit that red hot the water inside is going to hit that those red hot uh, flues and suddenly you know boom you're going to have this explosion because you have an excess of steam well what happens is the the um uh, the chief mate and the captain they never redistribute these guys from the upper decks down into the lower decks or into the hold even. Put them in the hold. You only got a day to go before you're at Cairo, and most of the trip will be made at night anyways. But um, they don't do it. And so at, at midnight when they ring the bell that, you know, the hogsheads are all removed, a lot of the guys came back, but but um, I, I've wrote in my book that probably about 200 guys never returned. They thought, oh, my gosh, you know, we missed it. We missed our, our ride home. We'll have to try to get another one. Little did they know that that probably saved their lives. Wow. Well, yeah. we'll come to the $64 question because uh, it's going to happen just a couple hours after they leave Memphis <laughs> or less than that. What? Why did it right. explode? We'll come back with that question from our guest, Gene Eric Saliker, author of Destruction of the Steamboat Sultana, the Worst Maritime Disaster in American History. We'll do that when we return. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Planning for college? 
Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance of success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Jean Eric Salaker, author of Destruction of the Steamboat Sultana, the Worst Maritime Disaster in American History. We've followed the adventures of the Sultana as it gets overloaded with uh, nearly 2,000 Union prisoners of war. Uh, at Vicksburg, they made their way back up the Mississippi to Memphis, and now they're leaving Memphis, headed toward Cairo, Illinois. They're going to go home. They leave in the, the middle of the night. Uh, Gene, they're, they're, how far do they get from Memphis? Not very far. No, they only got about seven miles north of Memphis, or upriver from Memphis, and mm-hmm. uh, two o'clock in the morning, uh, one boiler will explode, followed a millisecond later by two more. So three of the four boilers will explode. And it literally, uh, Jerry, you know, comes from the back top of the boilers and literally <laughs> tears the, the entire center out of the, the Sultana. And as I had mentioned uh, with Sultana number four, uh, when it, when it uh, caught fire, the pilot was able to jam the boat into the shore and everybody got off and stood there and watched mm-hmm. it. Well, when Sultana number five, our Sultana, explodes, it tears off the pilot house. So there's no pilot there. There's no way to suddenly steer the boat into the shore and let these guys get off. And it just becomes a, a floating hulk, eventually catches fire, and these guys have to jump into the water. So what is there a definitive reason for why it exploded? Uh, we talked about the, the fact that if the, the tubes inside the boiler aren't covered with water, maybe because the, the boat is careening to one side or the water levels got too low and then they suddenly get touch the water again that water superheats in an instant and creates explosive amount of steam uh is, is that what likely happened that that's one of the um it's it's a combination of things um it is it is that the slight careening uh mm-hmm. the uh there's an eyewitness that said that that uh, he he just before the explosion uh, the, the engineer on duty, who will be mortally scalded, um, that he had been letting out some water because he thought there was too much water in the boilers, and at times the water foams, so he may have not—he may have thought it had too much, but it really didn't. Uh, another uh, 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 thing that that uh, that added to this was the type of uh, iron. It was charcoal uh, iron number uh, number four, and uh, or number one. I'm sorry, and it's it's a type of iron that now we know uh, becomes brittle after it's heated and cooled, heated and cooled, and it gets hairline cracks in it. 
And, um, you know, that's what happens on a steamboat. You know, they, they run hot for three or four days upriver. They mm-hmm. stop. They're in port for two or three days. Of course, the boilers cool down. You heat them up again to go back down river, and, you know, you're heated up for four days, and then you sit in New Orleans for three or four days. Um, so all these hairline cracks are happening. And um, it wasn't um, if the Sultana boilers were going to blow up. It was just a matter of when. And it just so happened that it, it happened on April 27th, 1865, when it was so overcrowded with all these, these human beings. I, I like to, when I'm describing this era to my students, I'd say steamboat explosions, which I, I recall were, were passed by railroad wrecks as the number one accidental death cause around 1840 or so. Uh, but they were, they were frequent and, and deadly. They, they're the equivalent of a plane crash because it's hard to survive one of these. Did the explosion Correct. kill most of the people on board, or, or what? No. What happens now? No, the um, the explosion will only kill. You know, they estimate only about two hundred people were killed. Now it's mm-hmm. so crowded mm-hmm. that when this explosion comes up through the middle of the decks, you know, it literally blew pieces of the deck and pieces of the people, you know, um, whole human beings out into the river. Um, mm-hmm. But what will happen is when these three boilers explode. They leave the furnace boxes wide open because the the um, boilers are on top of the furnaces. Mm-hmm. When they go, now you have these furnace boxes sitting there. And unfortunately, what's going to happen with the Sultana is uh, one of the smokestacks will fall forward, one will fall backward. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And the one that falls forward will hit the crowded deck that these guys mm. are on and crush the decks down together, almost like, you know, uh, a house of cards. It's sort of just... <laughs> and then what happens then is this uh, this wood will fall down from the decking. Again, it's very thin, oil-based paint, slides down into the, the open furnace tops, and within minutes, you have a roaring fire. Um, it's, been, it's been some of the guys that survived said that had we been able to find the fire buckets, we could have put out the fire, and the only guys that would have been dead would have been the guys in the explosion or the guys, you know, uh, squished between the decks, the collapsing decks. Mm-hmm. But they had been using these fire buckets um, to get water uh, from the Mississippi River or to go to the bathroom in because it was so crowded, it was hard to get down to, you know, one of the legal bathrooms, the, the real bathrooms, mm-hmm. or it was hard to get water. So they tied ropes onto these buckets, and they would throw them into the Mississippi River, pull it, pull it up, and drink that water. So, um, in a way, they sort of, you know, um, contributed to their own demise. Mm. So there, there's no water on deck to put the fire out. Uh, you've got guys then, some are blown into the water. Your description of people waking up in midair, uh, because you say it's the middle of the night, they're asleep, they wake up right. there in midair and they land in the river, not knowing what happened. Uh, others don't want to burn to death, they jump in the water. Right. What what um, what's it like swimming in the Mississippi at this time of year? <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to swim in the Mississippi nowadays, but but back <laughs> then, uh, and I and I've been on a number of steamboats, and in fact, I've <laughs> been on a, uh, I was on one steamboat uh, with, believe it or not, with uh, um, um, oh Ed Ed Bars and mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Ambrose one time, ah. and we were on the, we were on a, a, a Sultana. Uh, Civil War cruise, and I went out on deck about 2 o'clock in the morning and looked out, and at certain parts of the Mississippi River, even today, if you're not near a city, 
it's it's pitch black. You other than a, the <laughs> moonlight, you can't see anything. And I and I stood there and I thought, how scary this must be uh, in in April with the with the cold cold river. Uh, you know, this the, again the snow melt from the north is coming down. It's a <laughs> it's a freezy cold river. It's running really fast. It's pitch black. At two o'clock in the morning, they didn't know when it exploded whether they were seven miles above Memphis, thirty miles above Memphis. They had no idea because they had fallen asleep how far the boat had gotten and, and exactly what time it occurred. So I, I just thought how scary this must be to suddenly have to jump into this river to try to save yourself when swimming was not a very big art in those days. A lot of guys could not swim. And there were, it was so crowded that when these guys jumped overboard, and, and also, you know, fresh from Civil War prison camps, Confederate mm-hmm. prison camps, they lost their strength very quickly. It just was sapped out of them, and other people were grabbing onto you and, and, or onto your piece of wood, and they went down by the handfuls. It was, it's incredible that anybody survived um, from that. It, it, the description that you give of the... Uh the combination of heroism by some of the survivors and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. self-interest will will we'll say I, I don't want to use a harsh word I've not never been in that <laughs> position but we'll just say right. the self-interest that some people showed in that moment is 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 a striking contrast um, right. the, the your book is just filled with with first person accounts of what these survivors went through uh, a, a big chunk of the book is this uh, listeners that you'll enjoy enjoys me but what, what's the right word you, you'll be fascinated by this this book the way i was i think uh, to read you. these details uh of, of what happens uh i said at the beginning that this was infuriating because uh when there's such a drastic loss of life you assume someone ought to be held responsible and uh your book does describe there are investigations that take place uh but i it's not they don't immediately determine you know who did why this happened or who's to blame one theory does come up though which you you very clearly uh argue against you devote a whole chapter to it at the end uh that we may not know exactly what the accidental cause was but in your view this had nothing to do with with confederate sabotage that is correct that is correct um, what's interesting, you know, Jerry, at the beginning of the, the program, you had mentioned my earlier book, my 1996 book, right. um, and that was, at the time, that was one of the best research books that, that came out. Uh, a good friend of mine, Jerry Potter, he's actually the fellow that found the Sultana um, in the, underneath the Arkansas Beanfield. He wrote a book in 1992 about the Sultana, but him being a lawyer, he really stuck with this, this trial afterwards. Um, Jerry never really went into too much on, on the sabotage theory. Neither did I in my 1996 book because I didn't, I didn't think it was that anybody really believed it anymore. Um, but in the 26 years since that, my 1996 book came out, I discovered that there were a lot of people that had this sabotage theory that it was, you know, was, uh, exploded by a, a Confederate coal torpedo. And there is such a thing as a Confederate coal torpedo, um, but as you as you mentioned, I I decided to uh, put one whole chapter and and really try to debunk the sabotage theory. And the main evidence that that we have among everything else I point out is the explosion came from the top back of the boilers and went upward. 
had it been a cold torpedo, it would have exploded in the furnace, which would have been underneath the boilers, would have punctured the boilers from, from the bottom. Uh, mm-hmm. All that pressure then would have come out those, ho- those bottom holes and probably torn the hull out. But the Sultana will, will float for five hours before it eventually burns through and sinks. So there was no damage to the hull whatsoever. That alone should have pointed out that, that it was not a, a cold torpedo or a sabotage. And as, so, I, as I mentioned in the book, there was actually um, three people that supposedly sabotaged the Sultana. Um, none of them were alive when, when evidence came out that they did it. It was always somebody that knew somebody that said they did it. Um, so you couldn't arrest somebody and, and, and question them. You just had to go with, you know, this third-person account. And um, um, none of them hold, hold water under, under intense scrutiny, and that's what I tried to do with my last chapter. Well, I, I think it, it, it's quite effective. I, I, we live in an age when conspiracy theories are popular. People oh, yeah. believe the most outrageous things uh, without any evidence at all. And, and uh, you know, that, it's called thinking for yourself. I don't believe evidence. I think for myself. Uh, right. it, it, it's actually being ignorant and, and not following the evidence. And, and you, you lay out pretty clearly. Uh, a cold torpedo, for listeners who don't know, is... is an explosive shell that looks like a lump of coal. So you put it in your furnace, and suddenly it blows up. But as you describe, it was in the wrong place. It wouldn't have been strong enough. Would not have caused the explosion. Right. Uh, the, the the description of the way the people of Memphis poured out uh, onto the river in whatever small boats, cutters, yawls, gigs, pinnaces, whatever uh, boats they could find. Uh, and all the steamboats that had auxiliary boats, uh, the warships that were nearby, the Tyler from Shiloh fame was there, right, right, USS yeah. Tyler. Uh, all these boats, they put out their, their cutters, their lifeboats, and, and sent them in the river as soon as they saw that there was a disaster. Uh, so you got right. this heroic rescue effort that, that a little bit offsets how, how distressing the whole story is, is, is the heroism of the people who went to save the, the, the survivors. Uh, it just makes a great story. Um, oh yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know you have to also remember that even though Memphis had been under uh, Union rule since 1862, I think it was April of 1862, um, they were still you know. Oh, it's a Confederate city. And such. And, sure. And same thing with the the guys on the Arkansas uh, bank. Um, some of them had actually been ex-Confederate soldiers. Um, and there's the there's the story of the one fellow uh, 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 Barton uh, that that Frank Barton that actually took out a, a dugout canoe and in his Confederate uniform that's the only thing he had to wear went out and rescued people and um, you know it, again at at that point when you saw a disaster and you saw somebody drowning you threw aside your your political beliefs or or whatever mm-hmm. and you went out and you helped them and that happened with all the people in in memphis as you point out jerry and um it's it's just it that's that's a heartwarming part of this story it it really is it did it, it is a great part there's uh listeners we haven't even touched on the the trials and investigations that follow those are detailed in this book uh we're out of time sadly but there is so much in here uh, naval institute 
Press published it. They always do a good job. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a handsome volume. Uh, just a great story. Listeners, you will enjoy reading. You will want to read Destruction of the Steamboat Sultana, the Worst Maritime Disaster in American History. Uh, the author of the book is Gene Eric Salaker, who's been our guest tonight. Gene, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, thanks for coming on Civil War Talk Radio. And thank you, Jerry. I'm so glad to be with you. So thank you. Listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.